Welcome to Bootleg Avocado. This is your culinary and cannabis podcast. My name is Mario Rodriguez, and I am your host, bringing you yet another great episode in which today we're going to be talking about investing in minority cannabis founders. We're really grateful to be partnering with Austin Stevenson, Chief Innovation Officer of Vertosa, and bringing together this awesome, awesome panel, which includes Tiffany Yard, founder and CEO of Shoki, Maggie Connors, founder and CEO of Besito, and Joyce Sonali, partner and chief operating officer of Big Rock Partners. Please give a listen. Please also follow us on our YouTube page for the video version of this webinar. And check us out on bootlegavocado.com for future events and happenings. Thanks very much. So I think we got people rolling in right now. I wanna welcome everyone to Bootleg Avocado Presents, investing in minority cannabis founders. This is your virtual culinary and cannabis event series. Very excited to be here and put together this uh, next event, next webinar that we're talking about. Um, so obviously, you know, we've definitely taken the time to find a great partner for this for TOSA. And this is also brought to you by uh, Greenhouse. So we're sharing a lot of different platforms right now. So I wanna make sure that I'm sharing my screens properly. So just give me one second. Okay. Hi, my name is Mara Rodriguez. I'm your co-host and co-moderator and owner of Bootleg Avocado. Um, so obviously, you guys know I come from the natural food space as a chef. I worked in a lot of fine dining restaurants and uh, really got some time to work in the kitchen back of the house. And anyone who's working in the back of the house really knows that the kitchen is kind of a microcosm of the, of the world. You work hand in hand and uh, with a lot of people with a lot of different ethnicities, backgrounds, um, and cultures. And one of the best things is really working together and um, putting out some amazing food for the restaurant you're working for. The second thing I really enjoyed about working in a restaurant is the family meal. So a family meal, everyone kind of has an opportunity to uh, basically put out the, um, the, the food that they actually really grew up eating, um, given where they come from or whatnot, your grandma's recipes. And that's how I really got to know how people, um, who they are and, you know, where they come from. And it really kind of told their story. So, you know, I think it was a very, this is a very timely conversation to really have um, in what's happening in the U.S. And I kind of really wanted to make sure that we um, really, you know, put together a great panel for everyone and had really good conversations around really what's happening in the space right now. So let me just tell you a little bit more about uh, Bootleg Avocado. So given my background and everything we're doing, so Bootleg Avocado, we're a consultancy that really helps in, in leading collaboration support and global innovation in food, beverage, and cannabis. Uh, we believe in a culinary first approach to creating socially responsible and sustainable food concepts. I uh, also want to send a special, special thank you to um, our sponsor for today is One House. 
So the owner and CEO, Mike Hewitt, I known him for good over six years. He helped to, to recruit some of our top level managers on one of the startups I worked for. And it's great to see their growth and them jumping in the cannabis, in cannabis industry and helping with uh, talent search. So they cover a lot of different facets of the cannabis industry. Please reach out to them. Let me just send, uh, put down their contact details in the chat. And then let's get the show rolling. So, for the main event, this this panel has been put together over the past couple of weeks, and it couldn't have been put together any any better without the team at Vertosa. Um, they've really helped to find the uh, right people under their wing to really talk about. Um, investing in minority cannabis founders. So we're really excited bringing this. Austin, thank you very much for being here. Let me put the spotlight on you. How are you today, Austin? I'm great, Mario. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for, um, you know, your team has been very um, integral in actually putting this panel together. So tell me, tell me a little bit about Vertosin and a little bit about your background. Yeah, so, you know, leading with Vertosa, um, we design the best delivery mechanisms uh, for cannabinoids. Uh, we are a, Californ a licensed uh, California cannabis uh, manufacturer uh, where we inherently take a very hydrophobic uh, material, uh, that being a cannabis oil, and turn it into an ingredient to make it easily infusible into beverages, confections, uh, topicals, um, and kind of everything in the non-smokable uh, infused space. Um, myself, I am the chief innovation officer uh, where I lead our business uh, team uh, and all client-facing relations to help, you know, product manufacturers, brand managers, um, you, know, uh, you know, ultimately product innovators in their journey towards creating an infused beverage. Um, so we work with everyone um, from, you know, folks like here in California, Somatic, uh, Code Brew Coffee, um, to folks like on the panel with me, uh, Tiffany Yard at Drink Shoki, uh, who is making new uh, infused products. Um, so it's an, an honor to be here, um, an honor to, you know, be able to uh, share our stories on this platform. Uh, and really, you know, kind of illustrate um, all of the journey, struggles, uh, overall process of, of bringing an infused product, uh, an infused cannabis product uh, to, to life. Um, so with me uh, on this panel, I've uh, got to uh, bring two incredible uh, entrepreneurs um, that I really, you know, identify as leaders in this space, uh, as also not only my peers, but people I look up to in terms of their tenacity, their grit, uh, and commitment to really leveling up um, the cannabis-infused marketplace. And so, um, you know, number one uh, is Tiffany Yard, uh, who's the founder uh, and CEO of Shoki, uh, which is an amazing cannabis elixir. She's taken her years of experience uh, in the wine world and translated that experience into, level, again, leveling up the infused beverage category. Um, and then also uh, Maggie Connors, uh, the founder and CEO of Besito, um, who comes to the cannabis world from an extensive career in traditional CPG uh, at Pepsi uh, and came into cannabis with a, with a sheer focus 
on bringing to life um, amazing products um, that create impact um, and impact to the triple bottom line, um, meaning you know people first um, and ultimately realizing uh, the entire beauty of what this industry has to bring. And, and her brand, uh, Besito, just, just does just that uh, with the brand messaging, the brand design, uh, and ultimately the brand voice um, that she leads um, as the, the founder and the CEO. Well, great, Austin. Um, so should we start with Tiffany first? Hey, Tiffany, how are you? Hello, everybody. Thank you for the intro, Austin. Um, again, everybody, I'm the uh, CEO and founder of Shoki Beverage Corps, a premium black and women owned beverage and lifestyle brand that makes spirit free cocktails powered by the soil. Um, our flavors hail from my travels through West Africa and the rich Caribbean heritage of my upbringing. You know, food, good wine, good weed brings people together. We <laughs> hope that our products fit into those joys of life and community. So it's a privilege to be here. Thanks, Tiffany. Um, one thing I did forget to uh, mention to everyone, there's gonna be a few poll questions that'll be popping up. And also we're gonna be doing a Q&A after our discussion. So you can actually start putting in your questions right now. Uh, Maggie, tell us a little bit about yourself as well. Hi everyone. Thank you guys for having me, Maggie Connors. As Austin mentioned, I came from the wild world of CPG um, in New York, working for Pepsi and Starbucks for many years. I joke I've been selling drugs my whole career, so <laughs> there's some truths in there, of course. And I consider it such a privilege to now be able to work in my favorite drug, and I say that ironically, um, cannabis, which I've always loved, and but it took moving to California in 2014 to realize it could be a career, not just my, uh, you know, uh, indulgent passion medicine at, at night. And so uh, three years ago, I started Besito here in LA. We have a really beautiful vaporizer on the market. It's high in CBD and lighter in THC, hence this little kiss. Um, I'm Cuban heritage as well, uh, not as well, in the Caribbean as well. Um, and, and we're launching another product here in California in the next few weeks in another category. Got it. In the more of the food space? In the uh, THC space. THC space, all right. <laughs> And then um, Joyce, thank you for, uh, for joining us. Um, I know we're kind of like do the initial intro, but tell us a little bit about yourself and Big Rock Partners. Awesome. Hi, everybody. So happy to be here. Um, so I have been in and out of the cannabis industry since 2012. Um, I ran an outdoor cultivation uh, medical collective alongside an amazing master grower um, and joined the Big Rock team in, in 2016. Um, I also started angel investing and a couple of really great women-owned companies um, in 2015 um, and joined up with uh, my partner, Mike Carden, um, who evolved Big Rock out of his family office. Um, he's a professional investor, had focused on biotech and technology in his traditional fund. Uh, and uh, his family office, he and his wife uh, are really 
invested in our community and in you know creating good experiences and in personal wellness and so essentially they utilize their you know their wealth to start to invest in restaurants and uh, food and media companies um, and then in cannabis in 2016 so i joined forces with them around that time and we started collectively investing both through the family office and through syndications proud to say that we are an investor in vertosa um, and we about half of the companies on our in our portfolio are, are women-led several are minority owned um, and we just have a you know really a community-driven regional interest in seeing this industry thrive and succeed and uh, seeing as many makers and as many operators as possible um, enter the space. We don't want this to be a you know, monotonous, single type of demographic-focused industry. We believe that you know, uh, basically to influence to the communities that you know, we're representing in these metropolitan areas that are gonna be consuming cannabis that you need to have you know, sort of an even playing field um, at the executive level, so. Awesome, thank you, Joyce. So Austin, where should we start our conversation? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, Mara, the best place to start is, is with our, our founders. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, I think Tiffany and Maggie have incredible founding stories uh, and the reasons why they founded their businesses and some of the struggles uh, that they faced uh, in, in launching their businesses. And I think that, um, you know, maybe, you know, um, Tiffany, you gave the, the first intro, so we'll go to you and kind of telling us kind of what, what have been your struggles uh, in creating uh, this business and, and launching it successfully here in California. Uh, so, hi again, everybody. Uh, so, in the last 15 years of my life, you know, I, I navigated the uh, corporate space. And so, B2B sales specifically. And coming into cannabis uh, happened while I was overseas, uh, visiting friends and family in Ghana and coming back home with a business plan and a wonderful idea around infused beverages was again inspired from those travels and those conversations. And my first stop was Denver um, and it's been a wild ride ever since. Um, I would say one of the biggest challenges of getting a company like this off the ground, knowing that you're coming from traditional markets where you could potentially apply for a loan, you could potentially you know, lean on all kinds of vehicles to, to get your business off the ground and even bootstrap to a degree in traditional spaces with smaller amounts of money. Um, the regulatory environment alone in this space makes it very challenging to start a company the right way. Um, I mean, the right way meaning at least, you know, only using 30, 40% of your own capital, being able to do, you know, seed round investing, asking friends and family to throw a few dollars in. Um, it's much more difficult in that way. Um, I would think also the access to investment. Um, there are still many, many people who have so many apprehensions to this space. There are people that um, have a lot of stigmas that still have to be unpacked. So you could come to someone in your network with a wonderful business idea and they jump all over it. The minute you include cannabis, it's a whole different conversation and almost you know, a shutdown before you can even get started. And so I will say those are some of the challenges um, out right when coming into this industry, especially when you don't have deep bench uh, connections. Okay. What about you, Maggie? Where to begin? <laughs> so I, I got into uh, cannabis in California in 2016, early 2016. And of course, looking back, it uh, makes a lot of sense, but Prop 64 hadn't even passed. 
started my company in early 17, I actually um, started thinking I was going to launch a beverage because I came from the beverage world. Uh, I needed uh, you guys all back then. But of course, the, the legislation wasn't ready, much less licensing. It was, and trying to do everything legally, yet we didn't have laws yet. It was um, a lot of sort of waiting, frankly, to be able to do things uh, right, uh, compliantly. So that was a challenge, laws first and foremost, and then access to capital, 100%, um, couldn't, be, be given that it's cannabis, especially back then, uh, couldn't, no institutional investors, couldn't go to Sand Hill Road traditional outlets. Um, however, I have seen that change. Then I, then I raised again about a year ago now and did bring in institutional funds, a lot of just sort of consumer funds where I was their first cannabis brand. And so that's great because that's always how I've thought about the product, best in class uh, consumer experience. We just happen to have a schedule one drug in there. So, and then lastly, operating continues to be a challenge really every single day, a combination of um, how long things take, um, relationships, and um, things changing so quickly. It's this combination to me of things seem to take so long, but everything's changing so rapidly too, whether it's, it was laws in the beginning, but also management spend several months working with a manufacturing partner and then they change their strategy and you're out. Um, licenses coming and going. Um, it's been com companies coming and going, law firms coming and going. So just the, the speed of change um, can make it hard to really create a, a foundation um, and a focus and sort of execute whatever strategy you have you might have planned there'll be a hundred wrenches thrown in and and now of course my having done it now for a few years it's that's the name of the game and you're just writing it out and sort of staying nimble and reacting to whatever crazy thing is going to happen i see you caps for tiffany we just had to wait two months on pantone printed labels so it's, it's quite the wild world, but I've, I've realized um, it's really just the beginning. It seemed like the beginning a few years ago. I think yeah. it's still the beginning. Um, and we've got, it's still such an incredible space with so much room for innovation and new um, ingestion methods and products and targets and go to market. So it's still very much um, excites me. So if I'm hearing both of you right, you know, there's definitely regulatory hurdles, operator hurdles, relationships, manufacturing. Joyce, how do you bring this all together and really support these companies in this way? I think you're on mute there. Yes, sir. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I think we think of this in phases. Um, so initially coming out of the um, traditional market into the regulated market, um, you know, you had, you had certain data points that were, you know, sort of, I guess, unrealized in terms of actual data points because they weren't sort of vindicated by, you know, third-party trade organizations. Um, so at that time, it was, from a licensing perspective, you know, who had 
uh, you know, a path um, to achieve licensure, um, you know, efficiently without putting a ton of capex uh, into these into these you know originating businesses, um, and who was going to transition you know, kind of smoothly into the new market, as well as who was entering the market that had something that would be perceived as um, uh, disruptive, but also you know uh, sort of intuitively you know synergistic with the existing market. Um, and unfortunately you saw a lot of funds that were investing in, in ancillary. And so we saw a lot of folks, you know, from the technology sector entering and, you know, tons and tons ad nauseum versions of track and trace technologies and otherwise that, you know, there weren't that many license holders at the time. So for us, we wanted to focus on who is plant touching that has a relevant product um, and we did focus on some cultivators. We believe that cultivation is the picks and shovels of the industry, not the picks and shovels themselves, but the actual flower feeds everything within the industry. So we started where a lot of people, you know, hadn't, um, and that actually exposed us to a diverse range of, of founders because a lot of people out of the 215 model were not your traditional expectation of, you know, sort of, uh, I guess the demographic that you know is is, is seeking funds at Sand Hill, right? And, you know, there are a lot of women, there are a lot of people of color, um, and now, you know, so now enter into two years later, we have some data we can look back. Trade organizations and the state all got it wrong, and they're projected, you know. Uh, top line revenue for this industry, unfortunately. Um, so unfortunately now the, some of those companies that you know, were heavily invested in are now in a place where they actually didn't project actual and um, they're gonna lose parts of their company. You know, a lot of executives are gonna lose their footing and their companies. And so there is an opportunity from a distressed value perspective to pick up some of these, but you know, I'm proud to say that pretty much all of our companies are, are afloat and doing okay. And so, you know, my, my advice is always focus on, you know, working with entrepreneurs and founders that are realistic about what their, you know, sell through can be. We focus on two to three years worth of, you know, accelerated top line as opposed to three, five, six, seven. Um, we're not looking towards federal legalization. We're looking towards filling out the existing markets now, California being the biggest of all of them in the world. Um, so we really focus on how you can achieve profitability um, and realize, you know, where your burn basically sets balanced with um, your actual revenue. Um, so that's the first thing and actually working with a founder that understands that and is able to, you know, sort of look at their pro forma realistically and realize what a fair value is because listen if you're taking investment dollars you do have to understand and expect that that money is eventually going to come out of the company and go back to them um, and so what does that look like you know everybody was projecting exits towards Canada and you know not the entire market cap of Canada the Canadian exchanges doesn't equal one fortune 500 company in America so we never cared about that we never thought that that was you know the right path um, so you know as a founder you need to think about what your exits going to be what the actual value out of the company is going to be and have that realistic conversation with the investor yeah absolutely and then, so and Joyce thank you for that I think you know from your perspective investing in different cannabis organizations, um, you know, you took a, your fund, um, you know, took an immediate risk by being plant touching when other people did not. It was, it was a time years ago when everyone wanted just to invest in software, but you decided to actually touch the plant. And so that was a, 
a really big step forward um, in terms of access to capital for you know startups uh, entrepreneurs um, folks have brand ideas um, they have uh, product ideas but no one was willing to invest in those product ideas because they didn't want to touch the plant um, now considering your investment um, thesis you know what programs do you kind of put in place or to ensure that there's uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity, um, you know, going into uh, your investment portfolio. Um, what do you kind of use as kind of key benchmarks um, or indicators um, to ensure that companies that you are investing in, um, you know, kind of fit and look like, you know, the, the cannabis industry? Sure. Well, we have to be really proactive. You know, every single fund gets, you know, an extreme amount of inbound traffic. Um, and, you know, the Tiffany used the term friends and family. Um, you know, most most groups or founders are starting with their friends and family. And, you know, I want to be, you know, basically sympathetic to the fact that not everybody has access to friends and family that have capital. Um, so where we've tried to kind of invest our time, or I, I can say I have tried to invest my time is in, um, you know, certain uh, groups that are sort of incubators that are, you know, um, lifting up talent and understanding that, you know, that is going to be a long-term play. Um, so starting, you know, sort of an incubation group um, where basically you're getting, you know, generally like a 10 to 12 week program and, you know, they're assisting you with all sorts of, you know, business model and, you know, uh, pro forma related activities. Um, it gives you a network, but it also is like super longevity. So there aren't that many of them, unfortunately. And so what's happened is a lot of the, you know, bigger organizations are kind of leaning in to create mentorship programs, you know, sort of within their organization. So we participated in, specifically in the initiative uh, mentorship program up in uh, Portland, although it roams, um, you know, and, and I've taken on, you know, certain mentorship directly as well. But relative to accessing, um, it's definitely about being proactive um, and, you know, making sure that you're a friendly face in a room to a, uh, the one or two, you know, sort of, unfortunately, there's still a lot of tokenism in cannabis. So, you know, when I'm in a room and I see a person that is, you know, black or brown or a, a person of color or a, a female, I'm just trying to like talk to them and, and find, you know, access to their you know, to, to, to their mind share and like what they're trying to bring to the space. And um, at the end of the day, you know, it really comes down to, uh, you know, just fostering those relationships. We've set up sort of a, an advisory guide so that for people that, you know, aren't familiar with a lot of the terminology and a lot of the, you know, um, sort of first steps that you would take to seek investment capital, that it kind of guides them through that process. And, you know, it's not just founders, you know, that are, uh, you know, maybe coming from the industry from other places, but many, many folks just don't know how to set up a term sheet and fill out a data room. And, you know, that that's, that's not the same as operating a business and a CEO has to do both. So we try and educate people on how to do that. Yeah. Knowing how to raise capital uh, is critical to successfully uh, raising capital. And, you know, having gone through the, the experience directly with you, um, you know, I know um, kind of, the, the challenges and the, the roadblocks that can um, come to light, you know, through the capital raising process and having that, that guidance, um, mentorship and incubators becomes really important um, for startup founders um, that don't have 
you know, that, that legacy history or experience in, in raising institutional capital. Um, you know, you brought up a really good, you know, mention of both incubators and mentorship and, and tokenism. You know, I know when, when I started in cannabis, I was the token black guy as an advisor at an incubator. Um, and I in 2014, uh, and I raised, you know, the question of like, hey, there's got to be more representation um, here um, in terms of, you know, getting access to this, this pool of investors. So I'm curious, um, you know, Maggie, you know, from, from your perspective in raising institutional funds, um, you know, as, as a minority um, woman um, startup that's touching the plant, kind of what were the, the tools um, or the resources that you leveraged um, to successfully be able to raise um, institutional capital? Yeah, so I think with, with so many things stacked against um, women and the numbers speak for themselves, women founders, black founders, and of course together even worse, the numbers are horrid and they, there's only room to go up and the good news is we've seen those numbers go up on both the venture side of the table and the entrepreneur side of the table the last year or two and again, we, we will all work to continue that. Um, I think the flip side however is there especially in cannabis where the legacy culture is so masculine it's so hardcore potent um you know black packaging um, maximum thc very sort of scary to folks especially um a lot of women it's, it was not accessible, and I think still think it's getting there. Anyways, the flip side, of course, is cannabis is such a huge um, market, and it will be such a huge market legally, that we know that everyone enjoys cannabis. Um, every ethnicity, women, etc., and brands were not, and still really, I don't think, are speaking to these folks as consumers. Um, and resonating with this huge market. And so I think um, having, and we don't, we're not a uh, ladies brand, I say, I don't like like making things pink and shrink, as we say in CPG, <laughs> like weed for girls. I, I, that does not appeal to me as a consumer. Uh, I think we all have the lungs. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes, I think, um, knowing how to speak to that person without i've seen plenty of brands that are pink and shrink and they're you know run by men and it's very apparent to me as a woman when the copy is about like indulging in macaroons and pictures of lace and like feathers and i was like mm. this is not my life and i don't i don't know any women who are sitting around with macaroons and lace it, and so anyways, being able to authentically create products and brands and aesthetic and messaging that speak to the much broader cannabis consumer than this very specific sort of um, extreme archetype that developed under prohibition mm -hmm. is, I think, still um, a tremendous opportunity. Yeah, certainly. I'll actually jump in on that, Austin. Um, yeah. There is a... One thing that um, I think uh, when thinking about just minority-owned organizations, especially those that are bootstrapping, those just getting started, 
um, and working their networks, you know, understanding the just the courting cycle, um, I think in the investment uh, on relationship building uh, process. Um, knowing that, you know, uh, in, in my B2B life, knowing that, you know, before you even close an engagement, from the time you got that business card to that first check, takes sometimes 12 to 18 months. And so what that means for you as you're building your company, network, network, network. Don't sacrifice all of the work that you're doing without making sure the right people know. And the right people being those target individuals that are part of family offices, which are small investment uh, vehicles, um, more intimate, to private equity funds, where they congregate, uh, where they show up to events, you know, in this case, the virtual world of events at this point. Um, I think, um, again, people don't put enough of a premium on how long that process actually takes before you've built enough trust within, with each other. They've really got comfortable with your brand story. Um, they have enough social proof to see that your product is working and ultimately what that means to build a relationship because it really is kind of a marriage once you get to that term sheet. You know, we're in this together. Do they share your same vision? Do they share where, you know, this company plans to exit? Um, do they understand, you know, what their role is? What's in it for them? And so how well you communicate that up front can mean the difference between getting money much sooner than you would without beginning and again, engaging in that process, you know, intentionally. A hundred percent. I think, you know, Tiffany, thank you for that. Um, you know, having that trust, um, having the networks, and knowing how to communicate and set expectations across those networks uh, has been critical to, to you being able to, to start, start your business. Um, and so that leads me to kind of really being curious um, about, you know, accessing um, those networks, leveraging those networks um, for capital, um, you know, kind of, especially in kind of this cannabis, you know, 2.0 or 3.0 kind of product categories, you know, what we had years ago when, when Joyce was, you know, first started was in, in cultivation, and it was smokable products, and then you saw the next generation of, of vape products, and so Maggie had to convince people that, you know, vaping um, and creating a high CBD-rich um, oil was going to prove tractionable, and that there's a market for that, and now what you're doing is this, this whole next level in infused beverages and trying to convince investors um, that infused beverage as the category that's going to see the biggest growth. So, um, you know, Tiffany, kind of what what story and expectations um, are you setting as a startup founder in a startup industry and uh, in a startup in a really kind of really small niche product category? Like, how? Like, what is that story? What are those expectations that you're setting um, for the investors that you're you're speaking to every day? Yeah, you know, I think um, niche is actually your friend. Uh, when it's niche, you're able to really tailor a message, identify who your target market is very uh, succinctly. And that's always attractive to an investor when they're looking at your team, who you are, all the things. Um, I would say that uh, one of the main drivers of the conversations that I've had in the last um, two years is always focused on what I call the 50,000 foot view. Um, and that's not only marketing strategy and operations and the vision, which is so important to be able to communicate uh, appropriately, but what's in it for them. When you get to the end of the rainbow, what does it look like? And if you can show them that pot, literally and figuratively, to say, this is where I want to be, five to seven year plan, that's what it is, you can work backward. So they kind of see, well, wow, you're in humble beginnings, but this plan makes sense. 
and they can see how they can fit into it and again what's in it for them and you know these are business relationships so there shouldn't be a shyness about you know what are you bringing to the table you know the, the room for humility and you know and modesty you know to a degree stand on your laurels stand on your accomplishments and be able to communicate that confidently you know i think you know speaking as a black woman um, at the intersection of my color and my gender, you know, there's all kinds of baggage that comes with that. You know, should I be, you know, less, you know, forward as a woman? Should I, you know, should I kind of, you know, let someone else lead the conversation? All these things you have to unpack before, you know, embarking on the road of, you know, promoting your company because it's really on you. You know, they can only understand your story so long, as much as you can communicate it. And so that's um, some of the biggest uh, um, drivers from weight communication and making sure they can see what the end goal is and how they can benefit from that. So it's starting with self-awareness more than anything. Just being self-aware of, of yourself, what your strengths, weaknesses are, um, and then ultimately building a story from unpacking all of the layers um, that you know may have been preventing you from moving forward, but once that's all unpacked and you're completely self-aware, you know, bundling that together uh, and, and telling a convincing story um, that you know, shows kind of that five to seven year um, type of, of growth cycle. Um, and I know, so a big part of that um, is traction. Um, and so what you, we hear all the time uh, is traction, traction, traction. So kind of, I'm curious to hear, um, you know, from, from Joyce in terms of evaluating um, some of these businesses and, and, and the traction um, when you're investing in a, C a consumer package good, a CPG type of brand or a new innovative, you know, um, product category that is not your traditional flower or not your um, traditional vape. Kind of um, what are some of those key indicators that you're looking for um, and a successful CPG type, uh, business. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, investor, investors are really important, you know, uh, capital is really important, but more important is supply chain partners. Um, you know, in terms of being able to like, you know, realize, uh, margin, uh, for a fully manufactured product, you know, keep in mind, it's going to be taxed at every sector of the supply chain until it hits the consumer. And so, you know, the, the, the manufactured product is actually, you know, it, it, it comes with that luggage as well. Um, so the reality is in terms of how you see a, a, a company trending, um, you know, for me, frankly, it first starts with, do I like the product? Uh, you know, does it taste good? Does it make me feel good? You know, quality is the number one factor, period. Um, but assuming that it's it's a good quality product and you can get it to a place where the viscosity is appropriate and the efficacy is there and all that, um, it's going to come down to how you execute within your supply chain. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, some of that comes down to relationships. Um, so it's difficult to enter this industry without having those. But people can, you know, get jobs at first and sort of, um, you know, get to know the industry before they decide to step in. Um, and in terms of how we kind of evaluate, you know, new products in the market, um, we also look at if everything goes hell and high water, you know, take out the THC, take out the CBD, is this product redeemable in a traditional, you know, for the beverages category, the CPG category? Obviously, that's not relevant for flour, uh, but for any other product, you know, if that ingredient didn't exist, would I still like this product? Would it still be presented well? And do I think it would still have a chance at the shelves? 
So um, I think this question is for each of y'all. How do you guys lighten and enlighten um, your clients, uh, especially clients of color? Hmm. Say it one more time. So how do you guys lighten and enlighten your customers or clients, especially clients of color? Uh, enlighten in terms of like educate? I guess the question. It's really it's up to you how yeah. you. <laughs> I guess yeah. I guess how I I guess how I interpret the question um, is how you educate your clients or, or customers uh, and bring awareness. Um, and you know, from our perspective at Vertosa, being a B two B, you know, ingredient manufacturer, um, education and data drives results. Um, you know, from from Joyce's point, from Tiffany's point to to Maggie's point, all all three of them, it's quality. Uh, and creating an quality experience that's consistent uh, uh, and repeatable uh, and predictable. Um, and so the way that we educate our, our clients, the, the brand manufacturers, is provide data um, that speaks to potency, that speaks to stability, that speaks to onset, um, and ensure that that data um, is illustrated in a way that you know, your grandma can pick it up and understand it. Um, you know, we have, we, we have very uh, advanced technology that we have to simplify so that, you know, a new cannabis entrepreneur that has a great idea, that's a great marketer, um, that may not be a technologist, but they sure know how to like wrap up and put a pretty bow on something uh, and have all the tenacity to get out and sell it, you know, make it easy for them to understand. Um, and so that kind of, uh, requires our business um, to kind of take that Steve Jobs approach uh, where he says that genius is in simplicity. So we've had to take something really, really, really advanced and make it really, really simple. Um, and so that's why you go from where we're having investor conversations, we're talking about all the patents and advanced technology that we're using to emulsify and sonication and microfluidics to make it real simple. Where I say, hey guys, we turn wine, we turn oil into water. That's what we do. Um, and we make it really easy to infuse a beverage or a cream or a topical or a gummy uh, through our technology that turns oil uh, into water or even like some of this powder that I have on my desk, right? <laughs> um, and so, and that's it. It's just all the data uh, and really illustrating through videos, through decks, a really simple, clear message um, that your grandma can understand. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd echo that, Austin. Um, coming from um, the wine angle from my, my travels, um, I wrote a book called How to Wine with Your Boss. So um, as an author and as a wine educator, um, one thing we know about wine ultimately is got to start somewhere. You know, you're focusing on the grape types and, you know, what do you like? What do you don't like? You know, what's your tolerance? These are all things that, you know, wine folks teach people how to drink it. You know, what type of wine glass is appropriate for what type of uh, wine you're drinking? All the things. Um, that requires an education. Um, that is, applies to CPGs as well. You know, when you're thinking about packaged goods for consumers, you have to think about, well, what's their lifestyle? What's going to be easy enough in a language that they understand? Again, to echo Austin's point about making it as simple as, again, understanding, you know, if I put this in the fridge, I take it out at a certain time, I put it over some ice, it's a cocktail. Oh, great. Um, to the idea of, you know, well, what do mixologists like to use? 
you know, you go from mixing your favorite base liquor with your favorite, maybe in this case, ginger ale is my thing, you know, <laughs> and all of a sudden you got your nightcap. Well, what does that mean for someone who wants to now add a special flavor simple serve or some type of really great um, um, flavor mix? So those things, again, are things you can teach. And I think that's how you enlighten your customers and get them comfortable with what you're doing. But that responsibility is on the brand. You know, it's on the owners of the organization to, to walk people through that process. You know, when you talk about the word enlighten, I also think about the brand story. How did you start? What really got you into this? You know, being able to communicate that succinctly because we all know, you know, again, all of us, very limited, you know, attention spans. You know, you get, get information at what, 0.45 seconds according to Google these days with anything. And so making sure that what you can say that explains what you do in a really quick way that they get it the first time could make or break a new customer or an existing one to try a different, you know, portfolio um, item. A hundred percent. You know, that, that education and creating those experiences and telling that brand story uh, is what resonates to really kind of uh, capturing new consumers, new clients, new investors. Um, I guess, you know, one question I have, you know, maybe, that, you know, for Maggie uh, and Tiffany alike is, okay, now we're in a, you know, pandemic. Um, we have COVID. Everyone is, is stuck at home. What tools or resources are you using to enlighten and to educate um, your customers uh, on where your product is, how to use your product, um, where to buy it in the quarantine situations? Um, what, what kind of, kind of you know, COVID type of parameters are you guys putting in to tell those stories um, for your brands? I can pop in and I'm gonna address the last question and this one together. Um, I agree that it's on uh, uh, legal brands to educate our consumer, which is not surprising given a hundred years of misinformation and propaganda from the government. So we got a lot of work to do to create, and that's why what I love about the cannabis industry is we're all in it together. The, better, the more great brands and products and companies, the more legitimate we are as a, as a category. Um, and I believe it's on the legal industry to not only educate about the racist history of cannabis, but to help build an equitable legal industry uh, immediately. And to me, that as we're, uh, it has to be authentic. And it has to start, at least in Besito, from me as something, it's one of the biggest reasons I was drawn to the space. It's something um, I hire in. And talking about resonating with people of color when we were just two people our very first shoot we cast a lot of people of color because it's representation is important to us and then when i was hiring uh wonderfully about half of my applicants were people of color and they told me you know the brand resonated with them they saw themselves there where they're not on other brands and so besito has been talking about the war on drugs and putting a percent of sales since the beginning um, towards repairing the harms caused by the war on drugs, but also investing in content that's speaking about it. I find it, uh, a lot of legal brands don't even acknowledge it, yet here we are profiting off of the same exact plant that has incarcerated millions of mostly black and brown men. 
So I, to me, it's critical that we are real in, in talking about that and educating about it and, and doing something about it, which is not only hiring, but how we choose our supply chain, uh, vendors, et cetera. And, and the last note on there that I was pleasantly surprised about, uh, and obviously so many executives, um, way too many are white in cannabis and, we, and that's important to change. However, butt tenders, who potentially have the most power in, uh, from a CPG sales point of view, are very young, very diverse, mm -hmm. um, and that's been wonderful. Sort of Besito's embracing of women, people of color, queer folks, and, and giving back to those communities um, is much appreciated at retail, which, which is um, critical. And to fast forward now, of course, more, uh, sort of this increased focus on Black Lives Matter, finally in the media the last two months, um, galvanizing the cannabis community to have even more impact um, as, a, as a coalition. And then, of course, speaking through our channels, especially uh, as people are home, we've been investing even more in content um, and hiring Black creators and really creating education around all of these things, the war on drugs, growing at home, um, the legality, and, and people now are at home and they're passionate and they're absorbing all of this, uh, which, is, which is wonderful. And, and now, yes, we're inspired to kind of have more financial impact in particular um, at an even broader level. And what excites me again is even though there have certainly been missteps in many uh, cannabis companies and, and large ones at that. It's still very early. And if this is what it's taking to get everyone to join together, do right by our history and build an equitable present and future, um, it's still, you know, year two. And, and I'm hoping this inflection point um, becomes a core of the legal cannabis industry going forward. Yeah, that's well said, uh, Maggie. I think, you know, and there's so much responsibility that we have as licensed cannabis operators to represent uh, or to be uh, the change in the world that um, we you truly want to be. Like just to be, to be that representative, lead by example, um, the question that I get a lot of times is there's not operators, there's consumers um, that want to take action in, in some way, shape, form, or fashion uh, to raise awareness, to, to increase education, or just to support uh, minority cannabis uh, businesses and, and operators. Um, what are ways that you have seen, um, and this is for everybody, what are ways that uh, consumers can get active now or take action to really support um, all the efforts and all the leadership um, that, that we're making uh, across the supply chain, but ultimately support those minority-led businesses. Um, what can they do? Um, what needs to be done? And, and or what do you feel you know, is a, a missed opportunity um, that you know, folks can, can advocate for uh, as we do advance this industry? Yeah, and we take action. I can certainly jump on in that. Um, 
I think that from a consumer's lens, um, and myself being a consumer of many wonderful products in addition to making, you know, Shoki is being able to talk to the local grassroots leaders who create fantastic programs on education, on advocacy, um, ex actually taking the time to educate you on how to communicate to your political uh, leaders for not only at the county level, state level, where many laws that affect you personally in your day to day. Um, there are fantastic um, cannabis uh, focused organizations that do that, whether they're women led, whether they're uh, black and women led or people of color of various uh, creeds. And so all that to say, that's the number one place that I personally appreciate uh, um, to, uh, the starting point. Um, to start the conversation around uh, the political ties that, that make this industry so hard disproportionately for people of color. Um, after that, it's really getting educated on what the products that matter to you should look like and advocating for that and speaking up about that. You know, in a traditional CPG space, you have companies like Nielsen who run these amazing, you know, uh, uh, surveys all year round. They use as, as main data points to drive packaging, what things taste like, what they look like. And also that feeds into the supply, uh, the, the supply diversity programs that Maggie um, alluded to earlier. Ultimately, you know, what those subcontracting uh, uh, documents look like when folks start uh, collaborations, you know, they use that information. So you speaking up as a consumer to say, listen, when I walk into your store, I better see X brand here um, because these are the things that I like. When you complete these surveys for these organizations that want to know what you think, speak up use those common areas to say, this is what I like, this is what I don't like, and this one needs to change. That collective voice really has ripple effects across the industry. It makes everyone pay attention because ultimately the consumer really drives that demand and what they get. Preach, preach. I love it, Tiffany. That, I mean, that, that's definitely it. It's starting local, taking local political action and speaking up, using that voice and building that collective voice. Uh, Maggie, what, what have you seen in, in Southern California as you've really hit the market hard and started to expand your footprint uh, in terms of consumer advocacy for your products um, and really some actions that consumers can take um, down in your neck of the woods. Yes, I mean, my first reaction to the question is buy weed from black people and I'll put a plug in for uh, an, an amazing list um, that Canocclusive and Almost Consulting made called Inclusive Base, and it's a whole list of um, Black-owned products in cannabis. So, you know, conscious consumerism, put your, your money where your mouth is, is huge. And I totally agree, Tiffany, uh, demanding from retailers representation, because, uh, by the way, my biggest challenge is selling into buyers. Mm -hmm. who are mostly, uh, you know, young white dudes who like to get super high and are coming from the medical market. And all of that is wonderful. However, when I bring them this, and it's high in CBD and light in THC, and I've, lit, I've had several of them be like, why is it gold? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, why not? <laughs> gold is premium. <laughs> and yeah. They're used to selling uh, nugs in jars. And again, right. I love nugs in jars, but we're evolving a category. And they are the, the gatekeepers to brands, and they decide who gets shelf space. I can't sell D to C, right? I don't, can't even reach my consumer if I want to. Um, and so asking 
right now, you know, a big move for 15% pledge. Some of us are working on even higher um, amount of shelf space dedicated to, um, to black folks, queer folks, women, et cetera. So ultimately that bud tender and that store manager, it's their job to keep selling a lot of weed. And it's you consumers, us consumers uh, who are doing that. And so the, there's a lot of power there to ask when you're shopping, where are the black owned products and brands? Um, and if there's one you like, the best way I can sell into a dispensary is a consumer asking for my product to be there and proving that there's demand for, um, oh, I hate this, but sometimes smaller brands or Tiffany, you said niche. And I have a, uh, it's an interesting word that's come up a lot where I totally agree. Like great brands have a specific value prop target point of view. Um, however, I've heard it thrown at me in a negative way, basically saying, you guys are niche, you're not that mass, huge, get you really high brand that's in every single shop that is, of course, fueling the legal cannabis industry in California right now. But it's, again, the beginning, so we can't just run, it's not, the existing brands are not gonna be the forevers. We have to create room for these niche ones, even if it's not immediate cash flow for distributors and retailers, to build an actual, um, not only equitable category, it's not just that, but representative. And like with true consumer choice and, and options uh, starts with demanding a bit of change on dispensary shelf um, or delivery now. Should we uh, jump in some uh, Q&A questions? I know we're at the hour mark now. Um, let me just launch this one here. Um, I can read it out to you. Um, I also grew up in Atlanta, parents from Savannah. Long history of seeing the in, uh, inequality among women, race, gender, et cetera. How do we address this in a real sense? I'll start with that one because I'm from Atlanta and my dad is from Savannah and I've spent a lot of time there. Um, in terms of how we address it, you know, I think that Atlanta is, is um, there's so much opportunity there for so many different types of people and there actually is a pretty burgeoning um, community relative to, to cannabis. Unfortunately, it's probably going to parlay itself into other states. Um, so there are communities there. I believe Atlanta just formed. Um, they just had some sort of cannabis. Uh, uh, unfortunately, I think it ended up going online, but they've three or four years in a row had, you know, uh, an, an incubator group um, that's kind of, you know, mindsetting, like thinking forward as to how, you know, it can become an equitable, you know, prospect there. Um, I think it really starts in the cities um, and places uh, in, you know, the Southeast and, and, other, and other states that maybe, you know, are red states. Um, so Atlanta specifically talking with, you know, uh, the city council people and trying to push forward regulations there. Um, but in addition to that, you know, sort of looking to um, the traditional black colleges and a lot of the, uh, you know, uh, fraternities and sororities there that are actually trying to set forward uh, policies. I'm aware that, you know, Morehouse has a group um, that's activated towards this. And, and there's, there's, you know, some really actually good founders that, you know, I've seen of late um, that, are, that are coming forward with good business prospects. Um, so again, it's, it's starting with the community. And uh, you should assume that uh, any community that is really vibrant and diverse is going to have some sort of, you know, cannabis initiative. Anyone else? 
think that's a great response from, from Joyce. I think, you know, again, it's, um, you know, how to address, you know, the inclus inclusion and equity and, and diversity um, is, it really is goes to Joyce and Tiffany's point is starting local. Um, you know, when I look at um, the patchwork of regulation that's out there in the cannabis, the national cannabis uh, market, you know, you start with 2012, uh, Colorado, you know, went wreck, uh, Connecticut went med, Massachusetts went med, Washington went wreck, uh, and there was no provisions for social equity uh, in that legislation. Then you had 2013, Illinois uh, med, New Hampshire med, Nevada med, still nothing. It wasn't until 2014 um, that when Maryland uh, went medical, when you have such a large population of black uh, people there that you actually had a social equity provision uh, in place. Um, and then you start to see more states start to adopt that. Uh, California, Massachusetts, Ohio, Pennsylvania, 2016, all had social equity provisions established. Are they um, you know, significant? Uh, the, just the placement of that social equity uh, you know, provision is significant. Um, now, are they completely robust and are they perfect? No, not even close, right? There's a lot, a lot of missteps in there. Uh, but ensuring that you, as a voting citizen, ensure that your city council is putting the social equity program in place, um, you know, using your voice in the form in the in the form of a vote to ensure that there is a social equity provision in um, your jurisdiction is critical um, to ensuring that the frame regulatory framework is more inclusive, more equitable, uh, and more diverse. Um, without that piece, um, then you know, money's going to drive the show. Um, and so I think in this time more than ever, especially in the election year, we are seeing the, the power of petitions. We are seeing the power of collective action and collective voice. Um, and so that starts um, at everyone's locality, whether you're in a recreational state or a state that, can, that is considering going recreational, you have a voice and your voice needs to be heard and the voice, your voice can be heard uh, through you voting and you showing up at city council meetings um, as the starting point. Thank you, Austin. I know that we're running out of time here. Um, let's do some uh, closing remarks. Austin, I think that's a great way to segue over. Um, uh, Tiffany, let's start, let's start with you. Just give us your kind of closing remarks and how you want to leave, uh, you know, a few thoughts to the audience. Uh, sure. So um, I'd say that this is a very, very, very great opportunity. Um, the industry in itself has so many pitfalls, so many issues, but there's so many pockets of, of ways you can get creative, capitalize, uh, build wonderful networks that can help you take your dreams to the next level, building brands that can last four, five, 10 years, brands that can be acquired by larger operators, um, brands that, um, and in operations generally, that can do really well depending on the states that you're in. And there's so much that everyone doesn't know <laughs> that appreciate that everyone's really you know there's some folks out there who are really faking it right and those who, who who again are humble enough to say i don't have all the answers but i have some let's do this together don't be afraid to ask questions um don't be afraid to you know again 
post-COVID, um, jump on a plane, head to a conference, and just come uh, um, to show up and, and just meet new people. You'd be surprised how many folks are just as excited about the industry as you are. How many people who are just looking for that right partnership to take something to the next level. We can't do it alone. So that's the biggest thing I'd say, you know, from a capital perspective, yes, that's the biggest writing on the wall. You know, there's no way to lift this thing without the right amount of money and you can't do that on your own unless you have that kind of network. Separate from that, it's the intellectual capital. There's so many people who have really great skills in growing, great skills in manufacturing generally from traditional markets that want to get into this, but they need to meet the right people that can make that dream. And you'd be surprised how many folks you run into if you just show up show up as much as you can to wherever you can um, to do the good work, which is ultimately around social equity, around a representation, around making brands that are representative of the kind of customers that you want to serve. And then of course, find the right people to help you build that dream. Because if you're thinking it, it's possible. What about you, Maggie? I, I would say uh, one, if, if building, if acknowledging the racist history of cannabis and building an equitable industry is not already your driving force. Make it your driving force. Educate yourself and it will, it will get you. And then make it contagious and spread that word. But also, I, I, I totally agree with Austin. We need regulations start first. But I, and I think we all have power to do the same every single day instead of just pointing to social equity licensing. Again, who are you picking for your supply chain? Who are you hiring? Every day, whether you're a CEO or not, you make decisions and you can do it with a lens of helping people of color. It takes, it often takes extra effort, but that's the work. And two, as, as Tiffany mentioned, follow the lead of the folks who have been doing it for years. Check out Canaclusive, check out Supernova Women, uh, Equity Sessions, incredible advocacy group, groups led by people of color, many women of color who know it inside and out. This industry is still, I think, small enough where you can just reach out, raise your hand to help, reach out to me if you want to help more. Um, it takes everybody caring and then actioning, and we've got some incredible leaders to follow in this space. Um, and lastly, Joyce, I loved what you said of like, on a one-on-one -on -one basis, you know somebody who's interested, a marginalized, someone who's marginalized and interested at an event, friend of friend, take them in, mentor them, connect them. Each of us have the power to help make a more diverse and um, equity-minded industry, which especially for this plant is critical, um, and, and it starts with us. What about you, Joyce? So all of us wake up in this industry every day as advocates, and it's extremely empowering to take that on. Um, you know, at the at the business level, not all of us look like the communities that we're representing. Um, meanwhile, the consumers that are consuming this product, you know, are probably the widest tapestry, you know, that America has to offer. So it's the smart business choice to actually you know, uh, represent the community with, you know, the executive teams and the staff and the, you know, investment dollars that are flowing into the space. Um, but for me, it really starts with 
all of us are advocates. You know, I'm, I'm a gay woman from the South. So I came out in high school. I've like long been an advocate, but now all of a sudden, you know, 50 year old white men from Wall Street are becoming advocates for something that is federally illegal. So we can translate that into so much more change, I think, within this industry than any other industry sort of, you know, at that, at that, you know, foundational level. Um, and then in addition to that, you know, to Tiffany's point, um, you know, folks don't, aren't necessarily wanting to reinvest in stock exchanges right now. You know, I think folks are looking for, you know, reasonable outlets, unaccredited investors and accredited investors alike. Um, so there are good opportunities for folks if they, you know, sort of think um, realistically about what the forward value is going to be for their company to source capital from, you know, your communities and, and, and people, you know, neighbors, people that you know. So a lot of folks are really excited about this industry. And I think it's actually a really good time, even though the, the capital markets being what they are and, you know, lack of access to traditional banking, um, there's still going to be, you know, micro investment opportunities now um, if you're, you know, thinking locally and, and, and really looking to tap into unique structures. Thanks, Joyce. Austin, um, thank you very much for helping us put this together. Um, I know we're going to be doing another uh, event in about a month. Uh, we're going to be doing the Engineering New Age Beverage panel, which should be pretty exciting. Yeah, I am super excited. Mario, thank you for, for having uh, myself and, and all of us. Um, you know, as my closing remark, um, you know, I just say thank you and amazing job um, to each one of our panelists uh, and the work in uh, the work that you are all doing. I think that in this day and age, we don't, um, especially as minorities that are breaking all types of stigmas by operating in the cannabis space uh, as itself, um, we just need to give and show more appreciation and love to one another and just say thank you for being the advocate, for leading by example, for hiring people that, that look like us uh, and taking risk on um, taking investment risk on businesses uh, with leaders that, that look like us. I think the work, to Joyce's point, the work that we do every single day by waking up in the morning uh, makes us advocates um, and makes us um, leaders uh, by example. And so I'm appreciative to each one of the women on this panel and all of the people that I work with in the industry um, for breaking down the stigma, the stigmas and, and leading by example. And so I look forward um, to continuing this conversation and, and others with you, Mario, and, and, and thank you for uh, providing us your, your platform uh, to, to spread uh, this message uh, and this gospel uh, that we all uh, believe in so, so dear heartily. Yeah, no, thank you very much, Austin, Joyce, Tiffany, Maggie. Um, you know, I, I'm sure we're gonna meet one day in life um, at, at some point. And I definitely want to give you all a big hug at some point and thank you for all this and continuing conversation. Each of y'all have your own platforms. Yeah. Virtual hug. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, bootleg avocado, we're, we're here to really support everyone. We're minority owned obviously. And, um, you know, coming from the food world and jumping in the cannabis world, it, you'll always feel a lot of love and always want to continue that. And I want to spread that as much as I can. So, Thank you everyone for being here. Thanks for the audience. I know we didn't get to everyone's question, but we'll do our best to um, put this, um, check out our YouTube page for the highlights, uh, Bootleg Avocado on YouTube, and I'll be publishing all that the next couple of weeks. So thanks everyone. Have a great afternoon, evening, and good night. Thank you. Thank you.